And so the, the desire to have things, to have stuff, to have certain experiences, to have a certain amount of, a, of choice, to have certain uh, freedoms on that level, then defines who we are, which then moves into the second kind of desire, the desire to be someone. And certainly, you know, that all the different manifestations of our desire to have power, to have our opinions matter, to have um, a sense of influence over others, um, is the second realm, the whole desire to become. And, you know, we can see the kind of um, ways this manifests. I, I remember having a, a conversation with somebody who had been staying at the monastery for a while and this was a person who had a certain amount of, of professional competence and was um, not at all uh, used to having uh, a lot of um, responsibility and what happens in a monastery is just that there's very few things that we do where we have lots of responsibility until you're there for a little bit of time and then you're usually piled on with a lot of responsibility. But in that first part of coming and settling into a community, you know, there's a lot of emptying out. You know, we do chores, we cook, we sweep, we clean the bathroom, we wash the clothes, we rake, we garden, we drive people, but it's not like, you know, there's a big thing about us being a special person doing it. And I remember speaking to a woman who'd been at the monastery for a while, and she had noticed how she had become the one who cleaned the toilets. You know, her identity had just shifted into the domain in which she was operating. So because that was her chore, then cleaning the toilets was who she became. And she would get really agitated if people would leave the toilets in a particular way and feel really protective that they be kept in a particular way. And so her identity started to form around her activity. And she was reflective enough to notice it and to smile because it seemed ridiculous, you know, that you become the one who cleans the bathroom. But that's exactly what happens. Because our minds are not yet accustomed towards non-being, towards the emptying out and not locating ourselves either in the stuff that we have or in the positions that we have. And so we will move from one to the other. And so also these two overlap. And so, you know, I've certainly noticed in myself that if the position that I had was not affirming the idea of who I think I should be, then I would shift tactics and try and, and satisfy that with having something pleasurable to eat or to do or to see or to get or something like that. So the, the movement, if one is frustrated, then it tends to redirect itself into the other of wanting pleasurable sensations or feelings or ideas to have contact with. And so these go back and forth between these two. The last one, the desire not to be, is also a really important one to understand because, you know, certainly, you know, we can, maybe it's easier to see that addictions are um, not a path of peace, that they're a path of suffering. But when we don't want to feel things, we don't want to know what's going on, we don't want to show up, we don't want to be here, we just want to get out, 
you know, a lot of the energy that's fueling that is the desire not to be. And of course, the, the strongest expression of that is the desire not to be alive. Because there's some feeling that somehow, if I'm not alive, you know, if I, if I could die, then, then that would be the ending of the suffering, you know. And so there's a, an identification that the suffering is located into our physical body and that not having life or not having a body is uh, the freedom from that. And uh, without going into a long digression about you know, suicide, that's um, problematic, that thinking, because the problem is not located in our physical bodies. It's located in the habits and the tendencies of what we're doing with what's arising. And I know for myself, you know, decades of practice to learn to show up for what was arising. Because, you know, it was uncomfortable, it was painful. And so I would have escape mechanisms that I hadn't even even registered as escape mechanisms because I just simply did not want to feel what was going on. And and so to begin to move towards the vibhavatanha, the desire to, for non-becoming, is also a really important um, point in moving towards non-suffering. Because if we we are not able to show up for what's there, then it's very difficult that we will have any capacity for resolving it. We have to be uh, conscious of what we're dealing with in order to learn how to relate to it differently. And again, the, the vibhavatanha will shift and express itself in different patterns in different ways. And certainly, I would think that some of the whole addiction to substances is also connected to that. There's a deep, deep, deep feeling of not wanting to feel what is happening. And so then the response is is that if we just drink ourselves out of consciousness or shoot ourselves up out of consciousness, then, then we've somehow remedied the problem. But it's, that's not where the answer lies. And so then we're left with a body that has been poisoned and a whole toxic load that needs to be handled and habits that are not at all helpful. And we still haven't gotten any more handle on the stuff that actually is causing us the pain in the first place. Now, it's also possible that people can absorb themselves into pleasure as a way of not wanting to show up for what's there. And so the mind moves into pleasure as actually an expression of not wanting to be present for what's going on. And so, you know, one needs to develop a certain amount of discernment to see what's actually motivating the movements of the mind into what we're doing and not in any way to create a judgment or to impose any more harm onto ourselves in any kind of way, but just to begin to wake up to our own patterning so that we can start moving out of it. And one of the things that is interesting to me about, you know, this whole kind of um, value that stuff is going to make us happy is um, some of the devastating consequences of what happens when people realize that it, that it doesn't. I was um, meeting with a friend uh, when I was in Santa Cruz, and he was a, I think he and his brother had a company moving furniture for a while when he, after, after high school. And 
you know, some people bought a couch because they really thought that the couch was going to make them happy. And, you know, he and his brother would move the couch into their house and then they'd have a panic when they realized that the couch is not going to make them happy and now what are they going to do, you know? Or in Carmel, California is one of the more wealthy areas of the country and people have, you know, multi-million dollar houses and two or three or four cars and all the things in the world that they could possibly ever need and it has one of the highest suicide rates of the country because it's like, you know, people have all this stuff and it has done nothing to actually ameliorate what it is to be a human being and they're left with, well, if this isn't going to do it, then what do I do, you know? because there isn't the understanding that this stuff is never supposed to ameliorate that in the first place. So when we're looking at desire, it's not so much that we have to give up having things. It's just what is really important is that we need to start re-examining our relationship with them and to see how much uh, of our relationship with them is coming from something that's healthy or not healthy, and if the not healthy stuff is time to let go of it, you know. So, and it's, you know, it's, it's simple things. You know, how do we relate to the clothes that we have? And how many clothes do we need? How many pairs of shoes do we need? You know, how do we relate to the food that we eat? What's it for? You know, is it, is it a statement of our identity or is it actually an expression of something that nourishes our body? Now, we're living in a weird time because the food that we're eating today, a lot of it is is filled with poison and it actually is completely depleted of the nutrition that it's supposed to have. And so it takes a fair amount of sophistication to navigate the kind of quagmire of, you know, how do you eat so that it actually is nourishing your body without becoming obsessed or fixated on, you know, stuff that has stress in it as well. Now, Many of you have been involved with offering food and supporting me while I was here before, and I had all of these illnesses and all of these sensitivities to like a whole range of foods. And I noticed that if I ate the stuff I wasn't supposed to eat, it, it, it didn't have a good effect. And then while I was in California, I went through a, a process of, of having some treatments, and my sensitivities to the foods have been either completely eliminated or reduced significantly. And so I notice as I'm moving towards the things that in the past used to have an activation effect for me, there's a sense of, is this safe? Am I going to be okay? What's going to happen? How am I going to feel? What, you know? And so the, the trace or the residue of an identity as somebody who wasn't able to eat a bunch of things still has a tiny little residue even though it's, it's shifted. And so the identification also is present as we get healthy and as we get unhealthy. You know, I am somebody who can't eat this. I can't eat that. And I can't eat that. And so the physical thing shifts out of my system, but the identification with it is actually slower to shift out of my system. And the person who was treating me was saying that sometimes what happens for people is that the identification is so strong that it actually recreates the physical problems. And so we've got a thing where the mind is actually unable to shift, and so it recreates a body that is still 
sick. So we've got these complicated mechanisms that are having to do with identity and locating ourselves in a particular position. And it's true in a, in a healthy way, you know. It's true in an unhealthy way. So it's, it's good to look at our relationship with stuff. And part of the reason why it's good to look at our relationship with stuff is as the economy squeezes and as there's more pressure on people and as there's less available stuff to have or less available money to buy stuff, there's not less available stuff. The stuff seems to be continuing to magnify and grow exponentially. But if our sense of, of well-being is connected to the stuff that we have and our circumstances shift, it is profoundly unsettling. You know. Now, I haven't spoken to any person who's lost their home in Colorado Springs. I don't. I know of people who have, but I don't know them directly. And I certainly can appreciate how challenging it would be for you know a home that you've built or you've been living in and everything that you own basically just goes up into flames in a, in a period of minutes you know in this kind of unbelievable you know firestorm that moved through the city and so you know there's a lot of empathy for what that would be like and yet what I can also know in my own circumstances is, is that because of how unsettled my life has been for a while and having to pick up and move and not being able to carry stuff with me and not have not being able to have a lot you know and I can also you know I can see how you know how assured I was or comforted I was to know where my things were you know like when I put my tools away in the cupboard I felt so happy I knew I had my tools and I knew where they were and I had my rocks my rocks and my tools. And I just had this deep sense of, oh, you know, there's a sense of, well, I, who I am is supported by the stuff that I can feel ease around, you know. So, and it's not as if we exist as an independent creature completely separate from everything around us. It's, it's, that's actually not the, not the case. But the level of attachment we have to what's around us is going to have a, quite a significant impact on what happens when it changes. Now, I know people who have changes of fortune where they move from things being really a struggle to things being phenomenally successful. And that change is also incredibly stressful because the change also comes with it added responsibility and added details and all of that. But it also is a shift in their idea of who they are. And these things often come with a challenge connected to them. So when we look at desire, now the Buddha talked about desire. He didn't just say that, you know, watch your relationship with it. He gave a couple of discourses that were just fierce about some kinds of desires are so incredibly seductive that it's really difficult to be attentive to them and not get lost. And then he used the kind of, you know, metaphors that, you know, are gruesome as a way of describing the kind of pleasure that comes when one is lost in these kinds of desires and what it's like when you overcome that, you know. And 
so um, as a way of really bringing home the point that it's not just about not being attached, but about actually giving up the kind of movement into those particular desires. And his, his whole comment about that was having to do with, with the mind moving into sensual desire as a, as a way of uh, getting happiness. Because the sensual desire realm is so profoundly unstable, then it cannot be a place for lasting happiness. And it's very easy that our minds get confused by it. So, you know, another place where, so there's food and there's clothing and there's shelter. You know, look at what we do with our homes and how our homes become more than just an expression, more than something that protects us from the elements, but, you know, an expression of our identity. And then, of course, there's medicine. Now, the medicine thing in this country is totally out of control in terms of, of the cost for what it takes to get insurance or to actually get medical care. And yet, there's a lot of, you know, natural intelligence about how to take care of ourselves that we've lost contact with. And I think what's going to happen by necessity is, is that we're going to be forced back into re-acquainting uh, ourselves with these old ways of learning because they're going to be, we're going to be in a, in, a, in a compromised position to be able to afford the, the health care at the rates that they are offered at. You know, there was, when I lived in, I lived in, the, in the United Kingdom for 20 years, and the national health that they've got there is, is incredible because every person who's a citizen of the country can walk in and get free health care. And people would get upset because it was slow, and I thought, well, you know, slow is better than not at all. And sometimes, you know, I knew a couple of people who were really in bad straits. You know, one person was in a uh, hit, was on a riding a bicycle, and she was hit by a, by a car and had very severe brain damage. And they took her in, and they did whatever they did, and there was no charge. And then I knew a boy who had Down syndrome, and they did open-heart surgery on him to replace the, I guess, I don't know what he had, I don't, he had, it was very complicated, and it was like the equivalent of several hundred thousand dollars worth of medical bills, and all of it was free, you know. So we live in a cultural context where there's stress, because we don't have a system that takes care of people's basic needs, and, you know, sometimes people are having to choose between simple things, like do they get the medicine or do they get food? And, you know, what do you do? You know, what kind of choice do you make? And if you don't get the medicine, what happens? You know? So, but the, the point of all of this is not to superimpose an ideal upon us that causes more suffering, but to begin to start teasing out where the suffering actually is already and start learning how to relate to it so that so that, that can start easing out and falling and so it's not a, um, a request that people give up stuff that they're not ready to give up or interested in giving up, but a request that people look at what is, what is the relationship with the stuff in the first place? You know, how does it support your sense of ease and well-being? And, and what happens if you feel somehow that your stuff is threatened or 
that, you know, you might not be able to keep it or, you know, things like that. And then again, look at the places where we carve out an identity of who we are as a person, our, our position, our place, our level of influence, our capacity for our, our opinions to be uh, taken as important, and how that affects us and our attachment to that. And then looking at uh, the places where we're not interested in knowing what's going on. We don't want to feel what's happening. We just want to check out and the kind of mechanisms for checking out that we have developed. Now, for myself, you know, what I've had to learn is, is that there's, there's checking out which comes as an escape and there's checking out which comes as a compassionate response to a system that's just overloaded. And we need to learn the difference, you know. And so there's plenty of times when the body is aching and the mind is aching and the heart is aching and it's time to take two ibuprofen, have a bath and go to bed. It's like... It's time to check out, you know, because it's like, you know, you've been with this in a non-stop solid way for eight hours, and it's time for a rest, and sometimes these things are really helpful to know when to ease off and to do that. So, in the whole wheel of suffering, you know, one of the places that we can cut through is with desire. And so when it's really uh, useful, when we begin to notice our relationship in all of these spheres, because more than anything else, this is going to be something that can help us pull the kingpin so that the cycle stops revolving and in a perpetual motion machine of constantly perpetuating suffering and more suffering. And so, you know, one of the things that happens with, with the cycle of suffering is, is that when there's, there's a cycle culminates in sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. And usually that is a, is, a, is a moment of choice. You can take that and you can move it into addiction, into drowning the feelings, into uh, absorbing into pleasure, into trying to become a person who's somehow special. Or you can use that as a way of waking up the desire and the aspiration to not suffer and to, to reduce the, the wheel from perpetuating again. So every time we have any kind of movement towards uh, a desire and that ends up in being born into wanting something or not wanting something, then the result of that is going to be suffering, some trace or some residue of suffering either when it changes or when it fades away or whatever. And it could be very subtle, but sometimes it's not at all very subtle. You you can't have what you want. Sometimes it's not at all very subtle, you know, how painful that can be. So there needs to be the willingness to just look at where this is all happening as a way of beginning to say, okay, if desire is the place where the suffering originates from, then how do we relate to our desire so that we can stop that? And obviously we don't relate to the desire with a baseball bat where we say, you know, we've got to get rid of the desire because that's just another desire. But what we have to do is to begin to feel the desire and get a sense of, you know, just the, the pain of wanting, opening up to the pain of wanting and just hold attention right there. And then as the pain of wanting begins to dismantle the wanting, then we are then in a position of choice. And the choice is not coming from desire. The choice can be coming more from a place of wisdom and compassion. 
and moving through our life with wisdom and compassion has an altogether different experience and effect than moving through our life from de- from desire and not fear. And so it's just a question of what supports awakening and knowing this and coming close to this, moving in on this point, is is pulling at the kingpin that holds this whole structure together. Very powerful thing to do. So, um, let me pause there. And um, if you want to stretch, you're welcome to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.